Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you connect your Catholic faith with the emerging issues in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, the public policy voice of the Church in Minnesota. Joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you are all having a wonderful and very blessed Saturday. You can catch the Bridge Builder program each week on Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. You can also catch our past episodes online. Just visit mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find us on your favorite social media podcast apps such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we bring and protect the human dignity and the common good in the public arena. We also answer your questions via our mailbag segment, and you can email those at any time to show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. We end each of our programs with our bricklayer segment. The common good is built brick by brick by each one of us, and we give you practical tips for bringing your faith into public life. There's a big question today in the public square uh, after the redefinition of marriage, the emergence of all kinds of questions related to gender about and assisted reproduction about the role of parents and families and the well-being of children. How do we protect children's rights and prioritize those over adult needs? With us to unpack that question and some of those issues all the way from Seattle, Washington, is Katie Faust. Katie Faust is an important and emerging voice in the public arena and the director of Them Before Us, an organization created to advance social policies that encourage adults to actively respect the rights of children rather than expecting children to sacrifice their needs to the desires of adults. We were so glad that Katie and Them Before Us testified against the commercial surrogacy bill that would legalize that in Minnesota uh, earlier this spring, and we're welcome, uh, excited to welcome her to the Bridge Builder program. Hello, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. Kitty, uh, Them Before Us is really just uh, emerging as an important voice in a lot of these conversations. It's great to have more advocates in the public arena around really contentious issues such as the family and children. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Them Before Us and why you've become uh, such a strong supporter of the natural family, uh, the link between mother, father, and child. Yeah, well, there are a lot of voices that are advocating for um, these critical issues. But when I started blogging and writing about this in 2012, um, what I realized is nobody was actually officially advocating on behalf of the child themselves and defending their rights to their mother and father. That even though there's a lot of organizations that talk about the importance of family and marriage, There wasn't anybody that was really looking at it in a child-centric way and then attacking all of the issues that are threatening the rights of children. Um, So we started one, you know, we being me and uh, several other children who have divorced parents or um, kids with LGBT parents, kids who are donor-conceived. It's kind of like a coalition of the children of the sexual revolution coming together, Um, you know, My mom has been in a relationship with another woman since I was 10, um, but I've always had a relationship with my dad. And so when I heard, you know, the gay lobby back in 2012 and the run up to Obergefell talking about how, um, you know, two moms, two dads, it doesn't matter. I thought, you know, that's that's crazy. Oh, and then if you don't agree, you're a bigot. I thought you're insane. You know, I 
I love my mom and oh my gosh, I everything I do well as a mother, I swear I do because that's how she parented me. But I also needed my father. And you can say both of those things without one drop of animus or homophobia or hatred for people that disagree. So we decided that we were going to start an organization um, that centered on the child, um, that highlighted the stories of kids who are impacted by these bad policies and bad cultural narratives. Um, and we have found that it actually really does change the conversation. Katie, during our marriage amendment debate here in Minnesota some years ago, we really tried to make a lot of the same points that you did, that marriage was a child-centric institution, that it exists to connect men and women and any children born from their union. And that's why there's a public policy interest and dimension in what seems like a private arrangement. But that uh, that talking about children's needs and the very same things that you've been talking about seem to fall on deaf ears. And it just, is it because, in your opinion, that marriage has been sort of redefined culturally as a a contract between people who are romantically interested in each other, a love license, or why is that? And what have you found that's been effective in turning people's heads around on this question? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, you learn a lot by arguing on the internet. Um, And that's what I did for years and years before I started them before us. Um, And what I learned is that the people that decided to use that tactic during the marriage debate that, wait a second, marriage is actually about kids. Um, You know, the naysayers on the other side would say, oh, really? Is that why you're so upset about no-fault divorce? Oh, oh, I see. Is that why you're so bothered by heterosexual couples using sperm donors? Because I actually don't see you throwing a fit about that. You only seem to care about kids when it comes to children who are raised by gay couples. And you know what? That was a very legitimate criticism. Right? If we really are concerned about children, if we really are saying marriage exists as an institution that's going to unite the two people to whom children have a natural right, well, then we need to be equally concerned with all the different ways that children's rights are being violated, and we weren't. So one of the reasons why I think Them Before Us is gaining steam is because um, we support adults who are doing hard things so that children's rights are protected, and we stand against ideas regardless of whether or not, you know, people are gay or straight who are um, making decisions where children are losing their right to their mother or father. And so most adults in the United States, I think, um, are not necessarily ordering their lives in a way that respects the rights of children. And it's not gay couples or gay Americans who are responsible for the lion's share of the breakdown of the family, you know, like heterosexuals are responsible for that. So we have to be fair and even handed and really be clear eyed as we look at these issues. And the good news is that when we can do that, you know, we actually win some people over because we're being honest. Katie, you've mentioned a little bit about um, heterosexuals being responsible for the breakdown of the family. And you're absolutely right and not scapegoating others for that. But what does it mean practically, in your opinion, to put children's rights before adult desires, not just in law, but in our homes as well? Oh, it means so many things, Jason. <laughs> it means so many things. Like, if, you're, if we are going to be serious about protecting the rights of children right in our personal lives, so we, we as them before us, definitely are involved in the policy battle. You know, I just submitted an amicus brief, my second one to the Supreme Court, Um, on behalf of a 
gay dad who's losing his children to his former partner due to these new equality, you know, parenting laws. So we are very involved in the public debate. But when you want to talk about how it impacts you privately, it does it in a lot of ways. You know, let's start with cohabitation, right, and premarital sex. Like, when you want to talk about children's rights, sex is a baby-making activity, right? And so you don't do sex unless you are going to be in a position to raise the child that is made through that activity with that child's other parent. That means marriage, right? So that means self-restraint before marriage. It also means that when you're struggling in a marriage, not due to abuse or addiction or abandonment, but when you're struggling in your marriage because you're having communication issues or intimacy issues or financial problems, the answer is not, oh, the kids would be happy if we just separated. No, if you're going to put the children's rights before your desires, that means that you, the adults, do the hard thing and work it out so the kids don't have to live with the lifelong struggles and risks that go along with having divorced parents. It means that as adults, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, that you don't intentionally create a child who's going to lose a relationship with their mother or father so that they can fit into the world of your romantic inclinations, but instead you, the same-sex-attracted adult, orders your life in a way that respects your children's right to be known and loved by both mother and father. It means that as a heterosexual couple, if you guys long to be parents but you're struggling with infertility, you don't make a choice about creating a child who will be intentionally separated from a biological parent because you choose to use a sperm or egg donor. So there, what I'm telling you is this, is this is big time, but so are the problems in our nation. What we are facing today, this crisis in the family, has a lot more to do with personal choices than it has to do with national policy. And every single one of us is going to have to make difficult personal choices if we're going to not only protect the rights of our own children, but mend our society. Katie, say a little bit more about the way in which the transition from our view of the child as a, uh, to use a term, uh, a subject with rights, a subject uh, who bears rights mm-hmm. to an object of uh, affection. In, in other words, the child is more and more seen as an extension of adult happiness and not someone who bears rights and has dignity on his or her own. How is that playing out um, in uh, familial relations, in the courts, et cetera, et cetera. Say a little bit more about some of the emerging dynamics, whether that's yeah. uh, struggles uh, between uh, parents in broken families or fragmented families, between new partners and biological parents, three-parent birth certificates, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a quote that I often cite from Rabbi Gills Barnum, you know, that children are now becoming um, objects of rights, not subjects of rights. So the idea is, Um, I have a right to a child, right? Or I have a right to happiness. My kids can fit in with that right. And so what that looks like on a policy level is two moms on a birth certificate um, or this move away from biologically-based parenthood to intent-based parenthood. Um, I wrote an article about that in The Federalist earlier this year um, where what's happening, you know, what happened with Obergefell, and this is where a huge shift was in our sort of conceptual idea about this legally is that um, if if what makes you a parent is biology, um, then that means that 
same-sex couples are always going to be discriminated against in parenthood um, policy. And so now we have to make parenthood based on intent. I intend to parent this child, therefore I am a child. Well, what that really means is that the courts can award children to adults who have no biological connection to them, who have never adopted them, and oftentimes aren't even married to the parent of their the parent of the child, right? And so now they're just objects, right, that can be awarded and transferred to whatever adults have the money and means to acquire them. That's a commodity, right? If we really looked at children as unique individuals who have rights that need to be defended and protected, our policies might permit adults to make decisions that are not favorable to kids, but they wouldn't be promoting these scenarios and incentivizing these scenarios and normalizing these scenarios um, where children have to lose a relationship with their mother or father to be in that scenario. Katie, we've had a lot of discussion about surrogacy here in Minnesota, and you've written and participated extensively in that debate as well. Say a little bit about the troubling nature of surrogacy from the standpoint of child's rights. And, uh, you know, what would you say to an infertile couple? I mean, you mentioned this already a little bit, but maybe we can unpack that a little bit more. What would you say to an infertile couple, um, you know, who's trying to have a child is unable to and looking at uh, other ways using assisted reproduction to do so or or many pro-lifers who think that because Mm -hmm. life is created surrogacy is therefore good how would you respond to to those uh, arguments great question surrogacy really unfortunately is difficult for people on you know our side conservatives or christians or pro-lifers because you're exactly right we think babies babies are good, therefore surrogacy is good. It, you know, lends to the confusion that we have all these celebrity couples, right, who are having children through surrogacy, and we don't actually see what's going on behind the scenes, the commodification of women, um, the incredible aspects of eugenics that are involved. You know, it always involves an embryo transfer where you're trying to figure out which embryo is the most viable, or do I want a boy, or do I want a girl, or, oh, maybe this one has some kind of Um, markers that show that perhaps they're not as healthy where we're going to, you know, dispose of that one. Um, Our stance, our our policy at them before us is if you can use reproductive technologies in a way that does not violate any child's right to life or right to their mother and father, God bless you. But when you are talking about surrogacy, (laughs) there is very few situations where adults only create the number of embryos that they are, they intend to implant right then, that they use the sperm from the dad and the egg of the mom and put it into the mother herself, right? Why not? Because it's, it's cost prohibitive. It's just too expensive. And so most people go the route of creating multiple embryos that are then frozen indefinitely or donated or sometimes you know, adopted out if they're in storage for five or six years and the adults feel so guilty about having all these biological siblings that are on ice. But let's talk about that scenario of surrogacy where it's going to the child. It's going to both a mother and father who created the child, right? The biological parents are going to be raising the child. They're just going to outsource the pregnancy to someone else. Well, that is still a problem from a children's rights perspective. And here's why. When I started this organization, I had hordes of kids with um, gay and lesbian parents or children who had divorced or children who were donor conceived who were already on board. But there was one group, there's one group of kids who 
resisted. And you will every now and then see their angry comments on my page. And that is adoptees. That there is a large group of adoptees who feel that they were so harmed by adoption, so harmed by being separated from their birth mother at the moment of birth, even if they were subsequently adopted by a loving heterosexual couple, that they would say, that separation from my birth mother resulted in a primal wound, that that is the woman that I knew and loved for the first nine and a half months of my life. And I was suddenly, and a lot of times they felt needlessly separated from her. And as a result, I had struggled throughout my life. That's actually very real. That's a very real phenomenon. Um, it's written about in a book called uh, Primal Wound. And it is true that there is incredible maternal bonding that takes place between mother and child in utero. And to sever that intentionally in a surrogacy situation is unjust. So there really is no way to look at surrogacy in a way that is child-friendly. And when you look at what usually takes place in surrogacy, you know, what I say is surrogacy isn't about making babies. Surrogacy is about making custom-ordered babies that are shipped worldwide, right? Surrogacy is a baby manufacturing business where the adult buys and the child is the, is the commodity that just simply has to fit in with whatever the adults want. So um, if you're, I did write a piece in The Federalist earlier this year called Why Ben Shapiro is Dead Wrong to, to Endorse Surrogacy, I think is the title of it. And it goes through all of the arguments about why surrogacy is not a pro-life issue. So if you're struggling with that, I encourage you to take a look at that article. We're talking to Katie Faust, founder of Them Before Us, an important voice in debates about child's rights and emerging paradigms in family law and assisted reproduction. Katie, how can we push back on some of the new cultural and legal paradigms that threaten child well-being while still maintaining relationships with friends and family members on the opposite side of these issues? Um, The answer is sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to choose. Um, I would say that what you want to do is make sure that you are um, kind, obviously very kind in how you present this. Um, the good news is that at Them Before Us, we are four kids and we make it very clear. Look, we are four kids. Look at their faces. Listen to their stories. Hear their voices. Look at the studies. We are four kids. We're not against any group of adults. We're four kids. And so that's very, very helpful when you can say, look, it's not that I'm against people using reproductive technologies. I'm for kids because I see the pain that they experience when they are intentionally denied a relationship with their father if their mom chooses to use a sperm donor. Look, I'm not against the gay couples. I am for kids. And I've read the stories of the kids who struggle with father hunger um, because they were told throughout their life that all you need is love. Look, I'm not against people who are struggling in their marriage. I am for kids because I am looking at the stories of kids and how complex and difficult their life is after their parents' divorce and how much more likely they are to struggle in their own romantic relationships later on in life as a result. And so being for kids and being child-centric will help. It will go a long way. But if your listeners are like me, at some point you just have to figure out Who's the real victim here? And what am I going to do to defend them? You know, I I love to be loved and I hate to be hated. And the vitriol from the other side um, went a long way in terms of keeping me silent for a long time. 
And it was only when I realized that actual kids were being harmed because people were promoting untruths about them and what they need and what their rights are that I finally got into the battle. And I did lose friends. And I hate it. And it's still the thing that almost stops me in my tracks, except that especially as a Christian, we're supposed to be defending the fatherless, not manufacturing them. And so that is what pushes me forward. And obviously, you know, in the world of the people around us, my role is to be a friend to them. I mean, I have friends who are raising kids in same-sex relationships or cohabiting relationships or, or whose parents have divorced. My role is to empathize and bear their burden, you know, not to come in and be the moral police, not that I hide where I'm at. Um, if they ask me, I'll tell them. But when it comes to policy, our role is justice. You know, our role is not to be empathetic and supportive of whatever adults want. When it comes to policy, we are the policy makers. If we're voting on this, and our aim is not to empathize, our aim is to bring justice. And so that may help, right, that you're not necessarily out there to confuse your role, right? Your role as friend is to be empathetic and understanding. And your role as voter is to bring justice. And the world needs both. I mean, you know, the world needs us to do both with all our might. But if you think that you can get into this and live at peace with everybody, you can't. Katie, that's incredibly powerful. Thank you for your witness. Where can people learn more about your organization? We are on all the social media platforms. We're um, on Instagram um, and Twitter, and we've got a pretty fantastic Facebook following. And of course, our website, thembeforeus.com. You can get on there at the bottom of the homepage and subscribe. Um, And we'd love to stay connected to you because we are starting a global children's rights movement. And you people should be there from the very beginning. Outstanding. I've gotten some great one-liners from this conversation already. I know our (laughs) listeners will as well. Thank you, Katie Faust, a founder and executive director of Them Before Us. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and the big issues in political life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, whatever you have for today's episode. Today we want to talk a little bit about the Equality Act. This spring, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the so-called Equality Act, and the U.S. bishops have come out very strongly against this bill. But that has left some wondering, why would the church be against something that promotes equality? That's a great question. And it's a lesson, first of all, on how you have framed the issue. And already we're on the defensive because of the way in which those promoting this legislation have framed it as a matter of equality. In fact, what it really is, is not so much a, a shield against discrimination as it is a sword against people of faith and others who don't embrace the new orthodoxies around sexuality, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Uh, Civil rights laws exist, of course, to protect people from discrimination, and what this bill would do would add sexual orientation and gender identity into the civil rights, the federal civil rights laws of this country. One of the reasons that the Catholic Church in the United States is opposed to the so-called Equality Act is because it's 
really a radical new expansion of civil rights laws that don't really aren't grounded in a proper anthropology and a truth of the human person, but also are a great threat uh, to religious freedom and freedom of conscience, but also to the dignity, we think, of women and, in fact, people who struggle with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction as well. What are some of the concerns that are being raised by this massive expansion of civil rights laws? And there are many. I mentioned um, really defining the legal existence of women uh, out of our laws. If men can now assert the identity as women and then uh, be protected from discrimination for asserting that identity, um, are women practically, for practical purposes, um, uh, eliminated from protection by our laws? We're already seeing, for example, uh, in women's sports where track records are falling left and right because of men who are uh, identifying as women and then running in women's races. What will impact will this have on women? What impact does it have on privacy um, if we're going to allow men, for example, into uh, sex-segregated uh, restrooms, changing facilities, uh, et cetera, et cetera? What impact will it have on privacy in shelters, uh, women's shelters, battered women's shelters, now um, allowing men in, for example, a lot of charity and faith-based service providers are particularly uh, concerned about the impact this will have on how they provide services. Um, will it impact how they provide services? Will it undermine the safety of those who they serve? And will, in fact, it force service providers out of uh, some of those arenas in which they serve as well? Um, it ra- grad- rapidly, or rapidly is not the right word, it broadly expands what constitutes a public accommodation. A public accommodation is usually the places in which uh, are subject to civil rights laws. It greatly expands uh, public accommodations to include both healthcare, but also um, nonprofits and other organizations that have only incidental connection to commerce, such as churches that have a, a cafeteria, for example, or ministries that have a cafeteria. So there's a lot of concerns about how broad this is. And, and most fundamentally, it does something that other civil rights laws don't do because it explicitly exempts its application from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And this is why a lot of people believe that the act is not a sword uh, is a sword against people of faith and others who dissent from the new sexual orthodoxies and not so much a shield against discrimination. Is there widespread uh, discrimination against LGBT persons? Uh, the answer is is probably no. I mean, when in a time when all the media outlets, companies everywhere have rainbow flags, especially uh, during June. Um, is it the case there is widespread discrimination? Now, some Catholics say, well, the catechism says we have to protect against unjust discrimination. Yes, that's absolutely true. And all people, regardless of how they identify, should be protected uh, from discrimination in the basics uh, of everyday life based on the fact that they are human beings created in the image and likeness of God. People should have access to employment, housing, education, medical services, all the things they need uh, that are consistent with their human dignity. But that doesn't mean they need special exemptions and special protections by the law when they are not facing discrimination. The evidence shows that this is really an attack on people of faith. And again, those who dissent, very problematic that it was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives earlier this year. Um, I don't think it's going to it's going to die on the vine probably in this Senate, but something to be concerned about and thinking about going forward. So before we go today, Jason, we always want to provide everyone who's listening with a practical way to start living out faithful citizenship. Each week, listeners, we will provide you these practical tips to bridge the gap between faith and politics. 
Today's bricklayer segment, first of all, is brought by our friends at the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. We're grateful for their support of the bridge builder. Uh, Our tip for this week, writing letters to the editor can have a big impact. Uh, A 150-word letter to the editor, which can be submitted in community newspapers, uh, the bigger newspapers, uh, can be submitted to some online news sites, a very easy way to participate in the public conversation. And politics in the mind of the church is really a great conversation about how do we order our lives together. So it's important that all of us uh, bring our perspective to bear on key issues. Um, And it's very easy to write a 150-word letter. Every newspaper or news organization has a submission site for that. So if something's bothering you, you see on a website, if um, you think there's an important issue that people need to bring attention to, a candidate who's doing a good thing or a politician who's doing a good thing or a bad thing, uh, let people know about it and bring your voice to bear. Again, it's 150 words, really easy, doesn't take a lot of time. Make one point, make one substantive point and submit those. And that's a, a great way and an easy way to participate in the public square. That's all the time we have today uh, for the Bridge Builder radio program. A link to a legal analysis of the Equality Act will be put on our show page. Uh, If you have questions or if you want to submit something to the mailbag, again, show at mncatholic.org, show at mncatholic.org. We're grateful for your listenership. Again, you can catch us on SoundCloud, um, all the other podcast apps if you miss this show. Um, Also, make sure to send your questions and comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and politics and live faithful citizenship. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. God bless you.